0: Join us on a journey from Genesis to Revelation, all 66 books, The Big Book, Cover to Cover. This is Michael Easley in Context. We began a study last week, Cover to Cover, The Big Book, and today we're going to do a high flyover of the book of Exodus. When you think of Exodus, uh, what are stories that come to mind? Kind of Christy's email, what stories come to mind when you think of Exodus parting of the Red Sea, Passover, burning bush, plagues. What would you say is the big story of Exodus? Getting out of slavery, which how much of the 40 chapters does it technically take to get Israel out of Egypt? Hardly two, chapter 13, uh, 13, 17 to 15. So the book is, we talk about exit, exiting out of Egypt, out of slavery, but it's barely two chapters of the book. There is so much in the book of Genesis, uh, in the book of Hebrews, uh, that one too. Uh, um, The title is not unlike the problem we have with Genesis. It's not Exodus. The title is literally, and these are the names. Now, it'd be hard to say, turn to chapter 14 of, and these are the names, right? That'd be a little cumbersome, but it's a very important connective tissue. Again, these titles are put in much later. We've talked about the Septuagint translation. That was the Greek rendering of the Hebrew Bible, and they were the ones that brought the word Exodus into the storyline, but the Hebrew is, and these are the names. This is a really important title because it ties back to Genesis chapter 48, 46 verses 8 to 27, which read, these are the names. And so if you look at your Bible in the first part of Exodus, you're going to see the list of names. Why is that connective tissue important? The Pentateuch is, we need to think of this as a unit of books, not five different books. It's one unit of literature. And so the storyline continues and essentially uninterrupted as we go through. This is a sequel to what's happening. Obviously, the word Exodus does mean a going out in general terms, a leaving, and, and that is a nomenclature we like. It's easy to manage. The author, as we talked last Sunday, is will be debated until we're dead, uh, but the author I would hold is, the, is Moses as the author of the Pentateuch, and um, there are some passages, number of passages in Exodus that also underscore this. Let me show you one. This is in Exodus 24, verses 3 and 4. Then Moses came and recounted uh, to the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has spoken we will do. Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. And he arose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain with twelve pillars for the twelve tribes of Israel. We could chase these around all morning long. We've talked about internal evidence, what the Bible says about the Bible. And this is one of many examples we could turn to. This is what the Bible says about it. Moses wrote these things down. The date of the book is another one that's going to be studied forever. And we fall into two camps, either an early view or an old view. I go for the early view, which is about 1445, 1446 B.C. You add in the 430 years of captivity, it rounds it out to about 1405 B.C. when they're actually out of the Exodus account. In Exodus chapter 12, verse 40, we read, Now the time that the sons of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. So we've got these timestamps in the Bible that scholars will always debate, and they will always take issue with because that's what scholars do. They dig deep holes academically into one subject matter, and they get lost in their own field. And so they're going to always take issue with uh, older views of you know, what we have believed for a long time. Uh, Exodus is going to cover a period from Jacob's moving into Egypt, which is about 1875 BC, all the way to the end of the tabernacle, which will be in Exodus chapter 40. The theme, and let me suggest very quickly, the theme is uh, redemption from slavery, consecration for worship. Say it with me. Redemption from slavery, consecration for worship. One more time. Redemption from slavery, consecration to worship. I I would encourage you, if you have a real Bible, write that in pencil or something on the top of Exodus chapter 1. Because this theme is one of the easiest themes of a book in the Old Testament to talk through. Because the whole structure of Exodus is this idea, we've got to redeem you out of slavery, and then consecrate or set you apart so that you can worship. If we were to survey the chapter one, it begins with a record of blessing. Egypt is, of course, captivity, but the Hebrews are having children like crazy. They're prospering like crazy. They're doing very well, even though they're in captivity. So much so that the Egyptians get a little freaked out. Pharaoh is threatened by the numerical population of the Jew, of the Hebrew. They weren't really called Jews in Pharaoh's mindset. So, what's his solution? Let's kill all the baby boys. And so chapter one is essentially an outline and summary of the entire book of Exodus. This happens in a number of our books of the Bible. If you were to do a literary analysis of what Moses writes in chapter one, it's like the perfect outline of the whole book of Exodus. The themes that come through this redemption picture are, are sort of manifold. We've got to redeem them out of a literal slavery because they're oppressed, they're beaten, bricks without straw. You know these stories. And so we've got to get them out of that. But there's a subtext to this. They are in slavery to sin, just like we are. So the solution for a redeemer, which the language is used in the Old Testament, to redeem them, to buy them out of slavery. But that, that's not enough. We have to make them able to worship. What happens when Adam and Eve break the one commandment, the one prohibition? They're kicked out. It's the fall. They cannot worship God in that garden context the way he intended for them to, by the way, cultivate and keep really means to worship Yahweh. It doesn't mean to trim the hedges. It means to worship God. It means to have a restful worship relationship with Yahweh. So that's broken. The fall's occurred. Now the fall affects, I'm going to say, two million plus people. And when they're in Egypt, and they're not only in oppression and affliction, but they're spiritually enslaved to sin. So this redemption from slavery is important on at least two levels, consecration for worship. we got to get them out of Egypt in order to worship me. we got to get them out of sin. We have to solve the sin condition, or they cannot worship me the way God intended for them to worship him. Um, just as a sidebar, and depending on which Bible you use, many people ask me, you know, what translation do you use? I'm, I'm sort of wed to the New American Standard Bible, NASB, for a number of reasons, and I've used ESV for years. I've used CSV, now it's HCSB. CSB, I've used um, NIV for a very short time. Uh, but, but these Bibles all have different approaches. The NASB, one of the many reasons I like it is the consistency of rendering. When the word God appears in your Old Testament, it's always Elohim. When the word Lord, L-O-R-D, when the O-R-D are small capital letters, is always Yahweh. And when the word Lord, L, lowercase O-R-D, is used, it's always Adonai. These words are important, not just to know the Hebrew iteration of it, but when you're reading the context, why did God choose to use Elohim when dealing with Pharaoh? A lot of reasons why does he put the words together? Adonai, Lord Adonai, and so the, the Jews had an expression called kathiv kareh what was written versus what was read because you can't say the word Yahweh if you're a good, pious Jew. You know why the word Yahweh, which is impossible to pronounce, it's YHWH transliterated. We don't know how to pronounce it. We don't have enough information from the, what we call the vowels. So we say Yahweh, or they said Jehovah in the King's English. It shows you how different we try to pronounce this word, but it's four Hebrew characters. It essentially means I am. So every time you say Yahweh, you're saying I am. If you're a pious Jew, you never utter God's name. You never say I am. That's sacrilege. So they would say another word, Adonai. So what was written was Elohim. What was read was Adonai, Kethiv Kare. So now come to the New Testament when Jesus has these seven I am's. Why do you think they get so incensed? Before Abraham was, I am. He's making himself out to be God. No, he is God. Which was a real conundrum for the pious Jew of the first century. All that's for free. So when, you, when you're reading the Old Testament, God in the Nazbe is always Elohim. Lord, with the O-R-D in a small cap, is always Yahweh. And then Lord, in lowercase L, lowercase ORD, is the word Adonai. Redemption from slavery, consecration to worship. What is Moses redeemed from in the very beginning? The water. The word becomes lifted out. He, in that first chapter, is lifted out as a salvation mechanism to save him from drowning. so we've got this whole picture of Elohim intervening. Exodus chapter 6, verse 6. Say, therefore, to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord. And I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from their bondage. I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Redemption is a key concept in this book. And, of course, that redemption is going to be memorialized in what we're going to call Passover. Um, We also have the issue of of the impact of blood. We'll talk more about this in a minute and some of these, these different aspects that Exodus transcends through the whole Bible. Let's talk a little bit about the Abrahamic covenant. In Genesis, we mentioned it briefly, but in Genesis 12, 15, 17, and 19, you have explanations and expansions of this covenant promise. Abram was chosen because he was the best guy to choose. God chose him. We don't know why. Same with Abraham, with Noah and for Moses and all the patriarchs. God chose him because he chose him. Period. They weren't like the best out there. Let me find a really good representative, a really good leader. Let me find that wasn't the case. So God chooses Abram, and we've talked about this before. The covenant promise was unilateral and unconditional. God's keeping the covenant, and he's going to do it, we might say, for our thinking, whether man cooperates or not. So the imperative commands in Genesis 12 are you will be a blessing. You will be the father of nations. You will have descendants as the sand and the sea. So that covenant, a unilateral, unconditional covenant, is so important to understanding, and we're going to see it repeated in the Pentateuch and in Exodus. Exodus 6, verse 3, I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, Lord, and again, if you had... I don't think we have it on this one. The O-R-D here would be small caps. So in my name, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. It was Elohim. So Yahweh changes the dynamic of a revelation. What's he self-revealing to these people? I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they sojourned. And then Exodus 6-8, similarly I will bring you the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. Uh, There are a lot of Christians today that hold replacement theology, meaning that Israel and the church have become one, that the church has replaced Israel. Very common in, in friendly churches that we would agree with doctrinally. I don't agree with replacement theology. The unilateral covenant in And Genesis 12, 15, 17, 19 has not been abrogated. It wasn't an if-then covenant. If you do this, I'll bless you. If you don't do this, I'll curse you. So I'm one of those weirdos that holds to the fact that covenant is still in place and God's still working in ways we may not fully understand, we won't fully understand. Let's think about Christ in Exodus. Um, we talk about typologies. Sometimes the Bible's really clear about a type of Christ. Sometimes it's not. We have some pretty clear pictures of what we call typology. Moses is likened to Christ. Uh, he was endangered as an infant. Jesus was endangered as an infant. Moses escapes. Jesus escapes, right? Uh, Moses is going to ha- institute this thing called Passover, which is going to be repeatedly restated, and it's going to be a perpetual memorial. It's about the Lamb of God. So when we come to the New Testament, what's the Lord's Supper? It's a reminder of the perpetual memorial that was pertinent to the Jew. We remember it as a memorial, not the same way the Jew did, but as a memorial. We have a Lamb that's slain. We have the Lamb of God that's slain. On and on we could go. So you see these typologies. Um, Christ and the Holy Spirit are obviously types. We have Christ, we have the manna, and we have the water and the cloud. We'll talk about that in a few minutes as well. Um, but the, and then finally, it it rounds out with the tabernacle complex in chapter 40. And for those of you who are BSF Precept CEBS folks, you, you studied the tabernacle. Probably spent months reading about the implements and architecture. And you know, I've, I told you the my favorite. I, I told you my story about my Hebrew tutor when I was in seminary. He was a Jewish guy, and he would tutor me in Hebrew, and we did a lot of memnonics with words, and uh, the word for tent in Hebrew is ochel, ochel. He said, this is how you remember it. Every time the cloud moves, the rabbi went, ochel, oh, we got to move the temple <laughs> I liked it. I, see, I still remember it, too, and you'll never forget it now. Ochel, oh, we got to move the tent. It's a portable worship center. And until that worship center was established under David's ownership of getting the materials for Solomon to build, there was never a permanent structure. And then the implements, especially the Ark of the Covenant, is what becomes the the key piece of the temple complex itself. Let's talk about some key teachings in Exodus quickly. Um, Again, we have the prosperity and the the numerical growth of the Jews. We have Pharaoh wanting to destroy the Hebrew boys. Moses lifted up from the Nile, which again is going to be the imagery of lifting Israel out of uh, their slavery. Moses is the reluctant leader. Uh, God's choice of Moses in chapter 3 and 4 is remarkable. The questions... This is another Bible study. You could preach 20 sermons on just the interaction between God and Moses when they first have this interaction. Uh, Moses is, you know, he's, he's out there, the burning bush occurs, and God talks to him. And the first question he asks is, who am I? In, in other words, I'm nobody. Why are you talking to me? I'm, I don't want any part of this. The second question he asks him, who are you? When I go to Pharaoh, what am I going to say? Who, who in the world are you? The third question, what if they don't believe me? The fourth question, send somebody else. <laughs> and the fifth comment was, um, oh no, the fourth four is not me. And the last one is send somebody else. Now, those questions are an outline for the believer. Who are you? Who am I? Not me. Send somebody else. I don't want to do this. Any of you in your Christian experience felt that way? How are you a witness for Christ in the world in which you live? Around the men and women? I can't talk about that. Who are you? What am I going to say about you? Send somebody else to do this work. I mean, you can go a long way with those five questions. Moses versus Pharaoh encounter will have the same questions, basically. Pharaoh is going to say, who is God? Who is Yahweh Elohim? I don't know this guy. Who are you? Who are these people? I'm Pharaoh. Implication, I'm God is what he's really saying. And then we begin what's called the polemic. The book of Exodus is a polemic. It's a literary piece of war. So we have the 10 plagues. And we don't have time to look at them individually, but we have blood, frogs, lice, flies, cattle, boils, uh, hail, locust, darkness, and the death of the firstborn. Each of those is a polemic against the idolatry system of Exodus. And again, some of you are well familiar with this. Let me just point out one the sun god Amon Ra or Amon Re. This was considered in within Egyptian idolatry, which, by the way, uh, archaeologists chronicled over 8,000 idols out of Egypt. A lot of idols to keep up with. And so, Amon-Ra was the big one, let's say. So the polemic is, Pharaoh, you think Amon-Ra is an idol, is a god? Let me show you something. I'm going to turn the lights off for four days, three days. Now let's see who's God. So each of the plagues was a polemic against something they believed. Blood of the Nile, the Nile fed the land. And when God turns it to blood and everything goes foul, what's he saying? You think this is what feeds the land, I'm going to turn it to blood and it's going to be foul. And I'm going to show you your gods are ridiculous. Each one of them was a polemic and it culminates in the death of the firstborn, which of course is is arguably the most, I would say the most significant event in the storyline because when they go through the Passover, they kill the lamb, they put the blood on the doorpost and lentil, they eat the food in haste. You know the story, right? and the angel of wrath comes through, only those who are under the blood on the doorpost and lentil will be spared the death of the firstborn. As I understand it, and I could be wrong, I can't be bulldogmatic, that's everything firstborn. Animals, sons, daughters, and I would argue if you're the firstborn parent, you drop dead that night. All the firstborn died in the land. It doesn't differentiate between just children. This is the firstborn. So every animal that was first born, anything that was, had a mammalian was going to die. Why is this important? Who's Pharaoh's son? God. The culmination of this is, you try to kill my son, which is who? Israel. You try to kill my son, I'm going to kill yours. That's the polemic. And this is why Passover was so important to the Jew, was going forward Teach your children, don't let them forget the signs and wonders and miracles because you're going to forget it. And if you teach it, you're more likely to remember it. And maybe they will as well. Well, many more things. Let me go to some lessons quickly. Number one, Israel's existence is because God delivered them out of Egypt. It's it's one of these obvious lessons, but it needs restating. The reason the Israelites exist is because God delivered them out of Egypt. Secondly, there is no other God but Yahweh Elohim. Um, So many of the passages about they make idols in their own image. And when we have friends who will, you know, I've said this many times before, when people say, you know, I can never worship a God who lets AIDS, uh, you know, uh, kill children. I can never worship a God who lets orphans die. I can never let a God, love a God or believe in a God who lets... uh, Rwandan shallow graves with 600 plus thousand people buried uh, because of these tribal wars. I could never believe in a God who, whenever we say those kind of things, we're making God in our image. That's idolatry. And so, this, when Christie went through the commandments, you know, one God, monotheism, which, by the way, is a sidebar. There's one other global religion that's monotheistic Islam. So Christianity and Islam are the only monotheistic religions we have on the planet, which I find striking in comparison and contrast. Um, Third, the Abrahamic covenant. I've mentioned this is unilateral and irrevocable. Fourth, the sinful nature of man persists. Everybody needs redemption. Israel uh, is going to complain. They're going to grumble. They're going to want to go back to Egypt. They're going to be called stiff-necked. And we're going to see in Deuteronomy the requirement. You teach your kids this stuff. You write it on the doorpost. You put it on your phylactery, on your arm, on your head. You you wear it. You go in and out. You touch the the mezuzah on the side of your doorpost. You want the ups and downs, ins and outs of life. You want them to know the Word of God Um, because the sinful nature of man persists and we forget. And then the ultimate goal, finally, is the consecration of worship in the temple complex. Let me just briefly read Exodus 40:34. The cloud covered the tent of meeting. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all the journeys, whether whenever the cloud was taken up from the tabernacle, excuse me, taken up from over the tabernacle, the sons of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, they did not set out until the day it was taken up. For throughout all their journeys, the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and there was a fire in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel. So the Lord's table, of course, becomes the the outworking of Passover. And let me read two passages from Exodus, Exodus 3.18. They will pay heed to what you say, When the elders of Israel come to the king of Egypt and you will say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. So now let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. How many days? Exodus 15, 22. Moses led Israel from the Red Sea and they went out into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days into the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. So the people grumbled at Moses, saying, what shall we drink? Three days' journey into the wilderness to worship. The entire construct of redemption from slavery was let my people go a three-day's journey in the wilderness to get out of this context of idolatry so we can worship God the way I designed him to be worshipped. The third day, there's supposed to be worshiping and they're found grumbling it's missed by most people when they read the book exodus the day we're to worship is the day we choose to grumble it's a potent reminder don't forget the cloud by day we often think of the holy spirit impressing and leading and guiding we have all sorts of bad theology therein if you had a cloud over you every single day by day and night would that make you feel better you're supposed to go and come and stay put i mean i can sit and watch netflix as long as the clouds there it's cool Oh, I got to go to work. Cloud tells me to go to work. I mean, wouldn't that be cool? So we have the cloud, and we have water and manna. Put it this way we have water, manna, and Jesus, me. What's he doing to Israel in the wilderness? Stripping away all the idolatry. You got three things you got manna every day except one, and they had a hard time following that rule, right? You got water when you're on the edge of dying of thirst, and every day the cloud's going to be over you. All you need is water, manna, and me. Michael Easley in Context is fully funded from donations by our listeners. If you're a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation on our website? You can find us on michaelincontext.com. In Context is engineered by Chad Cates, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Tycho, Chad Cates, and Blair Masters.